Scripture about God's holiness, and we don't talk about God's holiness very much. It's not really a, a popular topic. We, we want to talk about God's grace, and we want to talk about His mercy, and we want to talk about His goodness and His abundance, and all those things are true, all those character qualities of God. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but He's also holy. He's holy. We begin our morning with this simple question, what do you think of when you think of God? Do you think of his grace because he's gracious? Do you think of his mercy because he's merciful? Do you have a picture in your mind of kind of this old man in the sky with, you know, a gray beard and a cane, and he's kind of got that all shucks mentality. He's kind of like the benevolent old uncle that just wants the kids to have fun. And then, you know, we end up in jail and he like bails us out and doesn't tell our dad. Sometimes we have that kind of picture of God. Or we've got the, the picture of God. We picture those uh, kind of uh, Sunday school pictures of Jesus. If you grew up in church, or even if you, you know, you know, just kind of seen pictures of Jesus, he's got a, you know, brown hair and a brown beard, and he's got a white robe with a purple sash, and like, oftentimes he's like rocking a lamb to sleep. I don't know what that really is. I don't. The Bible never says he rocked a lamb to sleep, so I don't know where that came from. Or for some of you who um, getting a little snow on the roof, you remember the late 60s and early 70s, the, the hippie version of Jesus. Do you remember the hippie Jesus with like the Birkenstocks and like the long red hair? Like some of you I know are laughing because you remember those pictures of Jesus. And so we say that word God and we, we have all these different types of pictures, but but the Bible wants us to get really a full-orbed picture of who he is. We want to get kind of that 180-degree panoramic view of God's character. And, 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 and please hear me, all those things uh, that I just mentioned, that he's gracious, that he's abundant, that he is a giver, that he's merciful, all those things are true about God. The, the Bible talks about all of those things, but, but the Bible also talks about God's holiness talks about his holiness, and, and that's, that's what we're going to unpack this morning. That's what we're going to wrap our minds around this morning, and I'm going to pray here in a minute, and I wanted to kind of introduce it this way, because for some of us, it's going to be a little bit of a challenge. For some of us, it's going to be a little bit difficult, because the holiness of God has implications for you and me. It had implications for King David as we continue to study the life of David. Uh, it had implications for him, and, and it has implications for us, and those implications are tough to face sometimes. So what we're going to do is pray, and we're going to ask God to just soften our hearts. We've already sung this prayer, open the eyes of our hearts. We're going to ask God to soften our hearts that he might change us as we kind of, as we kind of peer into his holiness together today. So let's pray. God, would your voice be the only voice that's heard in the next moments? God, that we would forget the preacher, that we would forget the worship leader, that we would forget even those sitting around us, and we would have a laser beam, non-distracted focus on you. Speak, O Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. 
when the Bible talks about God's holiness, it really kind of gives us two pictures. It talks about God's holiness in two different ways, and hopefully as we talk about God's holiness, it'll help us kind of understand even what that word is, even what it means to be holy, what a, what a definition of that word holiness is. And so the first aspect of God's holiness that the scripture talks about is his relational holiness, his relational holiness. So that's not really talking about like how he relates to you and me, although he does relate in a holy way and it's not talking about how he relates to himself as the trinity father son and holy spirit or has as he relates to the heavenly beings it, really his relational holiness is how he relates to everything where god stands relative to or in relationship to you and me and heavenly beings and anything else the bible says that god is high and exalted and lifted up he is different than you and me the scripture says that his ways are not our ways that his thoughts are not our thoughts so far are the heavens above the earth so God is above you and me. He is altogether different. He's not like Superman. He's like you, but a little bit stronger. He's like you, but a little bit smarter. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he's not like you. He's not like me. In Isaiah chapter 6, when the prophet Isaiah gets a glimpse of the throne of God, he says that the angels, millions of angels around the throne are singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And after seeing that, and after hearing the angels say, Holy, 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 in the original language, holy, holier, holiest, Isaiah writes about that experience, and he says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, different, far above. Relational holiness. Number two, talks about his moral holiness. The Bible says that God is pure. He is spotless. All he does is righteous. All he does is good. All he does is just. He is totally and completely morally spotless. No sin has been found in his mouth. No act of sin has he committed. And, and, and it's hard to even fathom that, right? It's hard to even fathom someone or some being that's morally spotless. Get this, the Bible doesn't just say in word and deed, God is morally spotless. He's morally pure. He's morally holy. The Bible says that in motive, yikes, he's spotless. He cannot be challenged. All of his motives all of his words, all of his deeds are holy, righteous, good, and just. And I want you to know this morning, if you're jotting down notes, jot this down, that God takes his holiness very, very seriously. We're going to kind of unpack this in the life of David here in a moment, but, but, I, but just for where we're starting today, that God takes his holiness very, very seriously. So seriously, in fact, that no one or nothing that is not exalted, that is not lifted up, that is not altogether different can approach the throne of God. No one or nothing that isn't morally pure can approach the throne of God. The Bible asks this rhetorical question, who can ascend? the holy hill of God. 
The implied answer is nobody and nothing. He takes his holiness very, very seriously. So you might be asking yourself this question, and and you might be asking yourself the same question that the nation of Israel asked themselves thousands and thousands of years ago. Well, then how am I supposed to interact with that God? And he's high and exalted and lifted up different than me. Like, how's a goldfish supposed to interact with me? It's not going to happen. So how am I supposed to interact with God? Or if all his deeds are morally pure and spotless and all his ways and all his thoughts and all his actions and, 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 and all his motives are morally pure, um, it would take you about mm, three to five seconds to figure out that's not me. And it would take you even less time to figure out that that's not you. And if God won't allow uh, something that's not morally holy to approach the holy hill of God, then how am I supposed to interact with God? Well, God, in his grace, made a way for us to do that. And he made a way for the nation of Israel to do that. And it was called the tabernacle. When God's people were enslaved in Egypt, he called them out of Egypt with a man named Moses and they began to wander in the wilderness. And God said, okay, it's time for us to interact. It's time for us to have a conversation. And they said, great, what do we do? He said, I want you to build a tabernacle. They said, well, what's a tabernacle? And, and I could just picture this in my mind. This is not in the Bible. I'm going to move away from my Bible so everybody knows I'm not reading it. Okay, so I picture my mind. Nation of Israel going, what is a tabernacle? And God going, okay, it's like a tent. And he says very specifically, he says, I want you to make it 150 feet long. I'm sorry, 125 foot or so. Yeah, 150 foot long by 75 feet wide. And all around the outside, I want you to make kind of a wall of fabric. And that wall is going to be seven foot high all the way around. And in that tabernacle, that's where I'll dwell. That's where my presence will be. And that place, that tabernacle will be holy. It will be set apart. It will be different, it will be distinct, and no one or nothing that's not morally pure can enter the tabernacle. And so stick with me here. I'm actually going to go to the back because the tabernacle was 125 foot long by 75 foot wide. And our gym that we're sitting in this morning is 90 feet long by 70 foot wide. So everybody, you can turn your heads back here. I won't be here for very long. You're not going to get a crick in your neck. Nobody panic, all right? So when I entered the tabernacle as a member of the nation of Israel, as a Jew, to interact with God, I couldn't just go in whatever door I wanted to. Remember, this place is holy. It's altogether different. It's separate. It's where the holy God of Israel dwelt. So I couldn't come in any place I wanted. I'd have to come in the gate at the front. And when I came in the gate, the first thing I would see is an altar, and I was invited to make a sacrifice before a holy God. And I'd have to make a sacrifice and come in the outer courts of the tabernacle. But after I had walked uh, 50, 60 feet, I would come to this next chamber, and it was called the holy place. The holy place was 45 foot long by 15 foot wide. This row of chairs here is about 15 foot wide. And from me to that black curtain is about 45 foot. So there was the holy place. And still I haven't entered into the presence of God. I'm in the outside courts and then I come into this holy place. And the only people that could enter into the holy place were the Levitical priests. Not just anybody from the nation of Israel, but only this one teeny tiny little sect called the Levitical priest could enter into the holy place and there was a a, a bread of presence and a lampstand and it's all got symbolism we'll come back to it some other time but 
but, but I still wasn't into the presence of this holy God. Finally, the last place I would come to was the most holy place. 15 foot wide by 15 foot long, it was a cube. And only one person, the high priest, only one time a year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, could come into the most holy place, the holy of holies, and interact with the Hebrew word is Shekinah, glory of God. The glory of God shone down into the most holy place, and only one person, one time a year, could come and interact with God. Do you know why? Because God takes his holiness very, very seriously. Inside the most holy place that was 15 foot long by 15 foot wide was one piece of furniture. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. For those of you who are familiar with the story, it's talking about Noah's Ark. The, the Ark of the Covenant was not a big boat. Ark also means chest. It means box. It was the box of the covenant. And physically, it was the centerpiece of worship for the nation of Israel. It represented the presence of God, the favor of God, the provision of God, the power of God, and God's holiness. The ark represented God's presence, God's favor, God's provision, God's power, and God's holiness. The ark was three foot nine inches long, two foot five inches deep, and two foot five inches wide. It was made of acacia wood because that's what God said. It was plated with gold on the inside and out because that's what God said. It had ringlets on the outside and poles of acacia wood that were uh, plated in gold that went through the outsides, and that's how they were supposed to transport it, because that's what God said, because he takes his holiness very, very seriously. Inside the Ark of the Covenant were three things. I'm going to blitz through them. You don't have to write anything down. Aaron's staff represented the priesthood of God. Manna from the wilderness, when God provided food for his nation, for his people in the wilderness, he said, take a little bit of that bread, put it in a jar, and put it in the Ark of the Covenant. So every time you come before a holy God, you remember that I provide. And the last piece were the tablets of stone. Stone tablets that God had written with his very finger, the Ten Commandments. He said, remember that I have a law, a gracious law, to keep you out of trouble so that we would interact. He said, put those three items in the Ark of the Covenant and don't make the top just like a top. Make it like a golden grate. Make it transparent. Make it see-through. So when the high priest comes in just one time a year, you could see through the top called the mercy seat and you could see inside these three items, Aaron's staff, the tablets of stone, and manna. On the top of the ark, there were two golden seraphim that faced one another, two golden angels, and looked down inside of this box. I wanted you to get a picture of it this morning, and so I looked all over the internet at like modern renditions, and, and you know, the, nobody knows where the ark is now, potentially was destroyed, potentially somebody has it somewhere, I don't know. Um, maybe John Havercroft has it at his house. I don't think that's true, but maybe that's true. I don't know. But, but, but. What we have now are these digital renderings, these digital images, and I looked all over the internet, and you know, believe it or not, the best modern image, the best modern picture of the Ark of the Covenant comes from Raiders of the Lost Ark with Indiana Jones. Have you guys, have you guys seen this movie? Praise God. Good. Okay, good. So here we go. Here's the Indiana Jones. 
This is what this box looked like that set inside the most holy place. You see, it's plated in gold on all sides. You see the seraphim on top. A lot of folks, uh, when they do digital renderings of this, they make those seraphim, they make those angels really big. But the mercy seat on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant would have been very, very heavy. So if you put big angels on the top, it makes it top heavy. It makes it difficult to transport. So they would have been smaller like that. And these guys, though they're not Levitical priests, at least I don't think Harrison, for it is, um, they're actually carrying it uh, correctly according to Exodus 25 that you're not supposed to touch the ark, you carry it with the poles of acacia wood that God specified uh, for, for transporting the ark. Right before David was born, and maybe even when he was a little boy, our old friends, the Philistines, took the ark. And remember, the ark of God represented God's favor, God's presence, God's provision, God's power, and God's holiness. But they took it. They robbed it. And, and with Saul on the throne, he was a little kooky and a little bit crazy, and he was you know, too, too busy running after David in caves to go get the ark of God, so it had remained at a guy's house named Abinadab. And so David, when he first takes the throne in 2 Samuel 5, he establishes his capital in Jerusalem. He builds up the wall to protect God's people. Number two, he says, let's go get that ark. It's, it's, it's the box of the covenant. It's where God's presence dwells. It represents his favor, his blessing. Let's go get that ark. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. If you've got your Bibles, pick them up. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. The scripture's up here on the screen. You can read along with us. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bailey, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. Everybody know what that's referencing? The Shekinah glory of God, the presence of God, sits enthroned above the cherubim, those two angels there. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So picture this. David knows, and the nation of Israel knows, that this ark means God's favor. It means his power, his presence, his blessing. And so they go get the thing, and they're going crazy. They're celebrating with a lot of the same instruments that we use this morning. Celebrating and lifting praise up to God because they know that, that all of those things, his, God's blessing and his favor, are returning to Israel with the ark. But David, he's got a little power now. He's got a little position now. And and he wants God's power and he wants his presence and he wants his blessing and he wants his favor, but he disregards God's holiness, his otherness, his distinctness, his moral purity. David disregards those things. You know why? Did you see it in in verse 3? It says, They carried the ark of God on a new cart. 
Now, 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 not only do you see it in Raiders of the Lost Ark with Indiana Jones, you know, but it also says that in the scripture too. Exodus 25 clearly stipulates the ark is supposed to be carried by the Levitical priests, those who could enter into the holy place. Not just anybody, only the Levitical priests. And not only that, you don't put it on a cart, you carry it with the poles of acacia wood. Why? Because no one touches the ark. No one, ever. But David chooses what's expedient over what's right. For those of you who came for leadership lessons, part two from the life of David, I'm going to give you a quick one and then we're going to move on. Great leaders choose what's right over what's expedient. But David makes a mistake. He makes a big leadership mistake here. And he chooses what's expedient, what's quick over what is right. He knew Exodus 25. The Levitical priests knew Exodus 25, but they disregard Exodus 25. They disregard God's holiness, and they put the ark on a new cart. It's just funny to me. The, the Bible is clear. It's a new cart. David goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to disregard God's law. I'll build a new one. For those of you who, who know the scripture a little bit, you know that, uh, that David makes a, makes a grievous error here. And his grievous error has really, really horrible consequences. Pick it up in verse 6. It says, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, this is as they're transporting the ark from the house of Abinadab, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. That means the breaking out against Uzzah. Verse 9, and David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. I told you God takes his holiness seriously. God's moral purity, his distinctness, his otherness is manifested in his law, his precepts, his rules. And when we disregard that, we disregard God's holiness. And so when David disregards that, he disregards God's holiness. And because God takes his holiness very, very seriously, a man's life is gone. Now, Yuza owned the consequences for his own choice, for his own sin. He could have just backed away. He could have not been with the ark to begin with. But this is really David's deal, right? He sets up a no-win situation. Hey, let's put it on a cart. Bad idea. And David disregards God's holiness. You may be asking yourself, I, I don't know, I, I wonder if some of you are, why would God... Take someone's life for something so small. What seems like an insignificant act of disobedience, to reach out and touch the ark because he wanted to make sure it didn't fall. Because God takes his holiness very, very seriously. 
and his holiness will not be compromised. Remember? Nothing that isn't morally pure, nothing that isn't totally distinct can approach the holy hill of God. No one touches the ark. And God takes his holiness very, very seriously, and he will not allow his holiness to be compromised. I used to work at a restaurant uh, back in Arizona called Applebee's. Do you guys know Applebee's? I just, I just, you know, for those of you who do know Applebee's, I think this is um, one of the things that the United States has imported into Canada. I think Applebee's is an uh, American invention. And just on behalf of all Americans, I want to say I'm sorry um, <laughs> that, that we brought Applebee's into your country. Um, lots of other good stuff, Applebee's. E- even though I was working there for a year, uh, praise God, I, I, I am not an Applebee's fan. But that's beside the point. The point is, I, I was serving tables at Applebee's. I was waiting tables for a year. And we had a guy that, that worked with us um, that was a sweater. Like, I don't know if the manager didn't catch it, like, when he came in for his interview, but this dude was a, like a, like, you know, I just got out of the pool, dripping all the time, sweater. And if you're in Arizona where it's like 45 degrees in the summer, like, this is bad news, right? So some of you already maybe can feel the pain of where I'm headed because the sweater was serving food. You feeling it? All right, good. So I watch the sweater. Um, I should, should use his name, but we always call him the sweater. So, um, so I watched the sweater um, uh, take, who was a friend, by the way, just so everybody knows, but I watch him take like a, a steak, and I don't, I don't know who orders the steak at Applebee's, but whatever, if that's your prerogative, that's your deal. So he takes a steak, and he's serving it to this guy, and I'm watching this happen in slow motion, right? Uh, he sets the steak down, and just as he does that, a drip of sweat drops from his nose and hits the top of this steak. You know, it's like you get tunnel vision, you know what I'm talking about? And it's like, no, you know, everything slows down. Just one drop. So what the guy that ordered the steak say? Oh, it's fine, right? It's fine. I'll eat the potatoes, I'll eat the vegetables, I'll eat around the sweat. Yeah. Of course he didn't. He sent the darn steak back. Why? Because I ordered a steak and my steak's not going to get compromised with your sweat. That's what God says about his holiness. I'm morally pure. I'm totally other. I'm totally distinct. You think it's insignificant, but it's not. It's a drop of sweat on a steak. It ruins it. So we're going to fix it. How could God take someone's life for something so insignificant? Because God is holy. And his holiness will not be compromised. So David makes a decision that you would probably make and that I would probably make. He says, everyone back away slowly from the ark. We're going to leave it where it is. But where he leaves it is at a house, uh, a house of a guy named Obed-Edom. Look at verse 11. It says, And the ark of the Lord remained at the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom in all his household. See, all those things that David wanted, blessings, favor, power, presence, they all came to Obed-Edom, just as God promised. But David still wants all those blessings, but first he's got to own his own mistake. 
He's got to make a course correction. He's got to say, I messed up. I disobeyed. Exodus 25 is clear. You carry it this way. I didn't carry it that way. I put it on a cart and it cost me a man's life. I messed up. I'm going to correct it. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to go get the ark, but I'm going to do something different. Again, for those of you who came for leadership lessons, leaders are quick to recognize their own mistakes and course correct. That's what great leaders do. So David made an initial poor leadership choice, but now he's making a course correction. He's turned into a great leader again, and he says, I messed up. I've got to change. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12. Keep reading with me. It says, And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David's going, This is exactly what I expected to happen. So David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps... He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Verse 15, So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of horn. Why did it make it this time? What was different? Go back and look at verse 13. Verse 13, listen close. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord, it's not on a cart anymore. Somebody's carrying it. They're bearing the ark of the Lord. He's done what God said. He's made a course correction. He's responded to Exodus 25. You know, I love what the Bible does. It it gives us kind of some some different pictures of the same situations. And and sometimes we get a little bit more detail in different places. Let me read you the account of this very same story from 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. You don't have to turn there. It'll be up on the screen. Here's what 1 Chronicles 15 says about this uh, account, this exact same situation. Verse 1, David built houses for himself in the city of David. And he prepared a place for the ark of God and pinched a tent for it. In other words, he made a tabernacle, which is where God intended for his ark to be to begin with. Verse 2, then David said, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God. For the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. Do you see it? The course correction? Now he's recognizing God's holiness. Now he's standing in reverence and awe. Now he's responding to God's law. Now it's not so much about God's presence and his provision and his power and his blessing and his favor. Now it's much more about responding to God's holiness. This is a different David now. He's made a change. He's thinking differently. When David begins with God's holiness, listen close, when David begins with God's holiness, God's presence, his favor, his provision, and his power naturally follow. Did you see it? He danced with all his might before the Lord. He was dancing so 
crazy and like with so much joy, it says that his wife started to make fun of him at the end of 2 Samuel 6. You can read it when you get home. This is the unbridled joy. You have to listen close. This is the unbridled joy that David experiences when he begins with reverence and awe before a holy God. Did you see it? When he begins with reverence and awe before a holy God, David all of a sudden is experiencing unbridled, uncontrolled joy. When we begin with God's holiness, God's presence, his favor, his provision, and his power naturally follow. When we seek out God's holiness, his moral purity, his commandments, his otherness. When we stand in awe before a holy God, his presence, his favor, his provision and power follow naturally. I was having just an outstanding conversation with a friend a couple of weeks ago, and I said, um, tell me about when you got serious about your faith. And he said, um, I'm not sure I'm quite serious about my faith yet. And I said, I've been a pastor for... 15 years, something now, I'm not sure I'm quite serious about my faith yet either. (laughs) It's a joke, by the way. (laughs) And and, and then he kind of got serious for a minute, and he said, you know what, I've always thanked God. I've always been grateful to Him for what He's provided. He said, it's just been in the last year that I've begun to fear God. See the difference? And, And this is not fear like terror, you know, this is, this is not, this is not, you know, bad fear. This is just reverence and awe. We still don't approach God willy-nilly. We still don't approach him in a haphazard way. We still don't just seek after the gifts that he might give. We seek after the giver of gifts who is holy and exalted forever. Amen. Two points of application today and we'll be done. And they come in the form of questions. First, when David was faced with the holiness of God, when he saw a man's life taken because the holiness of God was not compromised, they attempted to compromise the holiness of God. When they disobeyed God, when, when, when Uzzah, or when Uzzah reached out and touched the ark, did you hear David's question? He said, well, how can the ark of God come to me then? If this is how holy God is, if this is how pure he is, how can his presence come to me? How can his blessing come to me? How can his power come to me? How can the ark of God come to me? And friends, this is the question we have to ask ourselves this morning. How can God's favor come to me? How can his blessing come to me? I'm not exalted like he is. He's altogether different. I'm not morally pure like he is. And if that's the consequences, if death is the consequence for sin, if death is the consequence for disregarding God's holiness, how can his presence and favor and provision come to me? You know what I deserve is death. We asked the same question David did. But listen, what if, what if, God is also gracious. What if he's also merciful? 
And for all the times that you and I earned death for ourselves by compromising his holiness, by doing what he said not to do, by failing to do what he said to do, because we are morally impure and our, and our motives, our actions, our thoughts and deeds are, are, are different from him, and we earned death for ourselves. what if God was just gracious enough to provide a sinless substitute who took the penalty on your behalf and on mine so that we might approach the holy hill of a holy God. This is, I love this about God. Love it, love it, love it. Because he's in a pickle. He's in a jam. He wants relationship with you and me, but he refuses to compromise his holiness. But if we approach his holiness and we're morally impure, we die. You can't have a relationship with a dead thing. So God's in a pickle. What's he going to do? Compromise his holiness? He can't. So what does he have to do? He has to provide a sinless substitute in his son, Jesus Christ. And all of the wrath that we deserved and the judgment we deserved and the death that we deserved, the death that Yuza deserved, poured out on Jesus at the cross and he took every last bit of it. So God's holiness is not compromised, but his holiness is satisfied completely in the cross of Christ. Do you see it? He didn't compromise squat. He didn't say, oh, I'll just, I'll just eat the potatoes and the vegetables. I'll just eat around that drop of sweat. He provided a sinless sacrifice on your behalf and on mine when we could not ascend the holy hill of God when we earned death and judgment for ourselves he poured it out on his son Jesus of Nazareth and three days later the tomb is empty and he's arisen to the right hand of the father so when we ask how can God's presence come to me how can God's favor come to me how can his power come to me because when God sees me he sees Jesus, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, Jesus, who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. How can the ark of God come to me? in and through his sinless son, Jesus. How can the presence of God, the blessing of God, the favor of God come to me? Because in Christ, his holiness is not compromised, it's fulfilled. Question number two. We end where we started. What do you think of when you think of God? Is, is it Jesus rocking a little lamb to sleep? 
I don't know. Uh, those pictures aren't bad. Is it a kind of a benevolent old man in the sky? Sure, God is benevolent. I get that. And if you had a great dad like I did, you picture God as a father. When John writes his book of Revelation and he goes before the throne of God in the future and he sees God on the throne, here's what he sees. He sees lightning and thunder and color and a million angels around the throne of God and day and night they cry out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The book of Hebrews says that we now have confidence, and it uses this language, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Can you believe it? What used to be reserved for the high priest just once a year, just one person just once a year, we have confidence to enter the most holy place through the blood of Christ because he's washed our conscience clean. Because we stand in him, we stand pure before a holy God. This morning, I wanted to remind us of that, that God is to be revered, that he's to be worshipped, that we are to stand in awe before him. And there are times, even when we stand before the living God, when our knees should knock a little bit, knowing that it's only by his grace, only by that perfect substitute that is Jesus Christ, that we can ascend the holy hill of God, totally reconciled. Fighting on our behalf is this holy God because of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, you are the great king above all gods. With the angels from Isaiah 6, we echo these words, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of His glory. God, as we respond together in song and just close with singing those words, draw our hearts near to You. You are holy. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together and respond in song.